I'm Michael Lamb, editor of the 15th of December edition of Talking Newspaper. This is the last edition before Christmas and I hope we bring you some joy. The main headlines this week are Staring down the barrel of a gun Arson attack on a pizza shop Five million to beat the traffic jams Clean it up you dirty animals Wanted at Christmas And boy robbed on Riverside Path Our readers this week are Pippa Curtis John Stark Vaughan Wiltshire And me, as I just mentioned a minute ago I've asked Vaughan to read again as we have several really good comments about his lovely floating voice. I would uh, say more, but it's going all red right now, so um, we'll move on. <laughs> several have also said that the Lord Lieutenant was good. And I pass on your messages, and his particular. Um, he replied by saying he was delighted and would like to return for another recording. So... That's being organised. So please keep up with your feedback as we all here want to make the recordings as pleasurable as possible for you. We have, as usual, our Wizzo engineer, Justin, who ensures the, re the recording is of the right quality. Your USB sticks are processed as expertly as ever by the delightful Carol Hartle, who ensures the rapid dispatch. I saw her last night and she looked very well indeed after her operation and sends her regards to you all. As usual, we have the headlines, deaths, local stories, local sports, selected radio programmes, weather, sunrise, and Vaughan will give us a delightful ten minutes or so on the Battle of Worcester Society and answer a few of our questions, because we're intrigued uh, about it, we really are. As usual, all the items follow on, and you can stop and start them as you wish using the big buttons on your players. Additionally, you can hear it on our website, worcestertalkingnews.org.uk, together with past editions, including the magazine. If you have any trouble or comments, please contact us by whatever means is convenient. Our telephone number is 019 Zero five seven six seven seven six six. I repeat that. Zero one nine zero five seven six seven seven six six. And please be prepared for an answering machine to take your call. We're trying hard to get somebody here uh, more, uh, more of the time to overcome this problem, but in the meantime. Be prepared for the answer machine. As usual, we would like to take this opportunity to remind you of our vast library of talking books. It's been constantly updated, unlike the public libraries. Again, let us know if you would like a book. It's sent free of charge to you, and there's no charge for the loan. I would like to thank all of you who made donations recently. They're very much appreciated. Now, I've edited this week's papers to try and find well-written, interesting news stories. But again, the paper has been full of photographs and adverts. Plus, they've increased the price. So, I hope the quality of the readers tonight will uh, make up for that. We'll read in the following order. And we'll start with uh, 
with uh, uh, Pippa on uh, the deaths, if we may. Okay, um, so starting with Ashenden, Kenneth Vernon, on November the 30th, peacefully at his home in Port Pershaw. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, December the 23rd at 1.45pm. Nat Bailey of Wood Norton, Evesham, on December the 3rd, tragically aged 19 years. Funeral service at Fladbury Church on Tuesday, December the 20th at 11am, followed by private interment. The family requests that you wear bright colours to the funeral. Beryl Tongue passed away peacefully on November the 28th, aged 91. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, December the 19th at 10am. George Buffery passed away peacefully in hospital on Monday, November the 21st. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, December the 19th at 1pm. Carmine DeVito passed away peacefully after a long illness on December the 4th. Requiem Mass at St George's Catholic Church on Wednesday, December the 21st at 12 noon, followed by a burial at Astwood Cemetery. Jeremy Leonard Garner passed away suddenly on Thursday, December the 1st. Funeral service will be held at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, December the 21st at 2.30pm. Dorothy, Dory, nay Simpkins, Hooper, <coughs> formerly of Belmont Street, Rainbow Hill, passed away peacefully at Darlington Memorial Hospital on December the 9th. The funeral service to be held at Darlington Crematorium on Wednesday, December the 28th at 1.15pm. Libby Humphreys sadly passed away on December the 7th, aged four. Funeral service to take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, December the 16th at 12.15pm. Keith Innes, former journalist at Worcester News, passed away peacefully in hospital on November the 30th Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, December the 21st at 10.45am. Ermgard Ruth Wichard, known as Ermi, passed away at the Royal Worcestershire Hospital on November the 30th. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, December the 21st at 12.15pm. Susan Brooks of Starport passed away suddenly on December the 8th, aged 70 years. Funeral service at Wire Forest Crematorium on Friday, December the 23rd at 10am. Phyllis Cripps, nay Cotton, on November the 30th. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, December the 22nd at 2.30pm. Grace Emerson died peacefully on December the 3rd. Funeral at St Michael and All Angels, Martin Hussingtree, at 11.30am on December the 22nd. Michael Manning, known as Mike, passed away peacefully at Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Birmingham, on November the 28th. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, December the 22nd at 1pm. Colin Charles Martin passed away peacefully at home on November the 28th aged 66 years. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, December the 28th 
at 10.45am. Dennis William Powell, known as Bill, died... It doesn't actually say, sorry about that. It's just the funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, December the 22nd at 10.45am. Sylvie Sear of St John's fell asleep on December the 7th. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, December the 22nd at 1.45pm. Mary Patricia Blake passed away peacefully on November the 23rd. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, December the 16th at 3.15pm. Vivian Bowkley, formerly of Worcester and West Malvern, died peacefully at the Boynes Care Centre on December the 1st. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, December the 21st at 1pm. Christine Beryl Roberts. Chris passed away at home on November the 23rd. There'll be a celebration of life service at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, December the 20th at 12.15pm. Keith Gregory sadly passed away on November the 25th. Funeral service to take place at Worcester Crematorium on Friday, December the 16th at 1pm. Christopher Allen Page passed away on December the 1st. Funeral service to take place on Thursday, December the 15th at St Peter and Paul's Church, Upton, at 11.30am. Beryl Marie High, nay Oliver, of Ombersley, died peacefully at home. The funeral service will take place on Friday, December the 16th, at St Andrew's Church, Ombersley, at 12.15pm, followed by a private cremation. Dorothy Rita Shepherd, formerly of the Hot Pole, Forget Street, Kays, Bromyard Road and the Teachers Training College in Oldby Road, Worcester, sadly passed away on November the 16th. The funeral is to take place at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, December the 15th at 1.45pm. And last of all, Reg Tandy, peacefully on December the 28th. Funeral service at St James the Great, Colwall, on Thursday, December the 15th at 10.30am. Thank you very much, Pippa, for reading that out. Um, I know a lot of our listeners uh, enjoy hearing um, what you just said. Now, let's do the headline, shall we? Back to me. Back to you, Pippa. I hope you got your voice back after this. I'm sorry that you've got to hear me all over again. No, you do a smashing job. um, So this is the headline for Friday, December the 9th, and the headline is Staring Down Barrel of Gun. Armed police came within a hair's breadth of shooting a man in a gun drama near a quiet Worcestershire village, a court heard. Officers sped to the area after a report of windows in a house being broken by shots and the householder bravely confronting a man carrying a realistic-looking pistol, Worcester Crown Court was told. The incident started at around 8.30pm on June the 26th this year when Wayne Ballinger and his wife, were watching TV in the lounge of their listed building home in a quiet country lane near Witchenford. Ian Ball, prosecuting, told the court. <clears throat> Mr Ballinger, who has a military background, heard a noise in another room and found three holes in two windows, which he realised had been caused by a weapon firing projectiles. He thought he was under attack and got into his BMW car to drive up and down the lane 
and saw a man he didn't know walking with his hand behind his back. Mr Ballinger stopped and asked him what he was holding, and the man, 34-year-old Matthew Martindale, produced the imitation firearm, pointed it at him and threatened to shoot. Mr Ballinger called his bluff, Mr Ball, the solicitor told the court. He told him he had better make the shot a good one or he would break his neck when he got hold of him, Mr Ball said. Martindale backed away and Mr Ballinger got back into his car and accelerated towards him, breaking at the last second and hitting his legs, toppling him onto the bonnet, Mr Ball said. Martindale grabbed the BB gun, got up and fled into nearby woods. Mr Ballinger called the police and they arrived to protect him and his wife in their home while armed officers searched the countryside nearby. It was almost dusk when one of the officers heard a noise in bushes and someone shouting, Is that the police? The officer raised his gun, shouted, Armed police! and told him to stay still, Mr Ball said. Martindale emerged from a ditch in the hedgerow with a black pistol and the officer got ready because he could not tell if he was going to shoot. The officer had his finger on the trigger and repeatedly shouted at him to lay the weapon down and not make any sudden movements, Mr Ball said. Martindale brought the gun up to throw it away and at that second the officer came within a hairbreadth of firing his own lethal police issue firearm arm. Martindale of Queen's Estate, Witchford, was arrested and started to behave hysterically, injuring himself when he headbutted the interior of the police van. The officer said later this incident was the closest he had ever come to firing his own gun at someone, Mr Ball said. Martindale pleaded guilty to criminal damage of the windows and having a firearm with intent to cause fear of violence. The court heard he had 76 previous convictions and a history of mental health issues. The headline on Saturday the December the 10th read Arson attack on pizza shop. Takeaway damaged in early hours blaze. A takeaway in Worcester has been damaged in an arson attack. Firefighters from Worcester rushed to Caspian Pizza in Sidbury at 4.20am on Saturday to reports of blaze in the front of the takeaway. On arrival, it was found the fire had been put out, but the flames had already damaged floor tiles and the menu board and left black smoke marks on the tiled walls. Someone was reportedly seen smashing the glass at the front of the shop and running away as the fire broke out. Police are investigating and say the fire is being treated as arson. But relieved owner Mohammed Shah says the damage could have been a lot worse without the quick-thinking actions of a van driver who happened to be passing at the time. He said the driver used a jacket to smother the flames, stopping the fire from spreading further inside the building. It was lucky that there was a young lad who saw it and acted on it straight away, he said. Somebody saw someone breaking the glass saw someone running away, saw the flames and hailed down some cars. A van driver put the fire out before the fire brigade got there. I would like to see him and thank him in person. If it wasn't for quick thinking and people being here, this would have been far worse. Shop staff at the takeaway got to work yesterday cleaning black marks left by the smoke and were ready to open for business as usual at noon. 
But Mr. Shah says floor tiles which erupted in the heat and a a damaged menu board must be replaced. The smashed front door window has now been replaced. Police and fire service investigators are treating the blaze as arson and are looking to trace a black Audi which was seen leaving the scene at the time of the fire. A West Mercia police spokesman said we're appealing for witnesses to a fire at Caspian Pizza, Sidbury, Worcester, in the early hours of Friday morning. The incident is being treated as arson. Police are looking to trace a black Audi that was seen leaving the scene around the time of the incident. Police scenes of crime officers are working with fire service investigators. Anyone with any information about the fire is asked to call police on 101 and quote reference number 65S of 9-12-2016. This is the headlines from Worcester News on Monday, December the 12th. Uh, the headline reads, £5 million to beat the jams. It's a story by Tom Edwards. A £5 million plan to reduce congestion for fed-up Worcester drivers can today be revealed, with council chiefs pledging to ease gridlock. Worcestershire County Council has unveiled a significant new investment to freeing up traffic. Drivers are being asked for their views to help shape it. The money will go towards, firstly, upgrading the worst traffic lights so they can let more cars pass through at key times, using responsive technology, with Sidbury in Worcester top of the list. Secondly, changes to congested conjunctions, including possible reconfigurations so that more vehicles can navigate the space. And thirdly, an investigation of all pinch points in the county to see what other pressing upgrades are needed. Matthew Crane, 51, a taxi driver from Clain, said, It's brilliant. Worcester definitely needs it. We've got so many traffic lights, it's ridiculous. The fund is on top of £1 million being added to the highway budget for 2017-18. That will make the road maintenance budget to £11 million, a 10% rise. And with that spending separate to the two-year £12 million driving home programme aimed at tackling potholes. The draft budget will be voted on by the full council in February after consultation. As we revealed last week, it includes a 2.9% council tax rise with band D bills expected to rise by £40 a year. It's interesting trying to um, sort the roads out. I hope they put a pedestrian controlled traffic lights coming from the Hive crossing down to Sabrina Bridge instead of the uh, Zebra Crossing. (coughs) Excuse me a minute. Okie dokie. Headlines for Tuesday, December the 13th. Clean it up, you dirty animals, is the screaming headline here. And a picture of a load of rubbish in McDonald's. It goes on to say, disgust at mess left by McDonald's customers. I would add, it's not McDonald's at fault, it's the customers. The text goes on to say, A fed-up diner has slammed disrespectful little-outs for not clearing up their mess at a fast-food outlet, at fast-food outlets in the city. Liam Rothwell, 27, lived in Warden until last year and returned to Worcester on Friday night to visit friends. 
but after enjoying a night out, he was shocked by the filthy scenes that awaited him when he called into McDonald's in Fourgate Street. He sent the Worcester News these pictures of litter strewn across tables and floor, saying it looked like it being made by a bunch of animals. He said, I think it's disrespectful to the staff who work there, as someone has to clear it up. It's not just on the tables, but also the floor, and it looks as if a bunch of animals had been there. I don't think it's fair on the staff to have to clear it up all that mess. People should think about the people who work here. It doesn't take a lot of effort for each person to clear up their own mess and to be decent people. People should put their rubbish in the bin. Mr Rothwell, who's lived in Worcester for most of his life, but now lives in the Lake District, says in his experience the situation he found in McDonald's was the same in various takeaways across the city that night. A McDonald's spokesman said, Our priority is to issue our restaurants... No, our priority is to ensure our restaurants remain clean and well welcoming. Bins are supplied for customers and we also employ hosts who are responsible for keeping up the cleanliness to a high standard. On occasions, our employees may not be available to clean up immediately. However, it is clear from the picture that one of our crew was, was in the area and after issued the issue and resolved shortly after. I take it these people have never been to waitresses in Cheltenham to see how filthy that gets sometimes. And here is the headline for Wednesday, December the 14th. Wanted at Christmas. Catching these four would be a real gift, say police. And then there is a picture of four uh, mug shots of individuals. Can you help police find some of their most wanted Worcestershire people in the run-up to Christmas? The names and faces of wanted people will appear in a rogues gallery over the next two weeks as police crack down on crime over the festive period. Images and details of those police are seeking in the Wanted in Worcestershire campaign will be released on social media as well as featuring on our website worcesternews.co.uk. Already four people have appeared in the rogues gallery and a further two have handed themselves in after police advertised the campaign. The names already on the list are Johnny Connors, 22, who is wanted for failing to appear at court, Bartholomew Corrent, 31, who has an arrest warrant issued on him for theft, Nathan Capewell, 34, who is wanted for fraud, and Anna Lee Eddy, 28, who's wanted for failing to appear in court. Superintendent Kevin Purcell says social media has helped with campaigns for missing people and police hope it will have the same effect for wanted people. We know from our use of social media that people do respond to it and pass us information, he said. This has been useful for missing people and some of our national campaigns. This Wanted in Worcestershire campaign seeks to use social media in the same way. Anyone with information about the whereabouts of any of the individuals should call police on 101, quoting Worcestershire Wanted. We move on to Thursday, the December the 15th, when the headline was Boy Robbed on Riverside Path. 
A teenage boy was robbed of his mobile phone as he walked along popular path by the River Severn. The 16-year-old victim was approached by two men at around 4.30pm on Tuesday, December the 13th on the towpath between Worcester Cathedral and the Diglis Hotel. The men demanded the victim's mobile phone and bag, taking his phone before leaving when they saw a passerby approaching. The boy who was walking towards Diglis was uninjured during the robbery. West Mercia police described the offenders as Asian, aged in their early 20s, of slim build and around six foot tall. The first robber was wearing a blue hooded tracksuit and had short, dark hair which was bushy at the front and had a stubbly black beard. The second man was wearing a light grey hooded zip-up top and black tracksuit trousers. A police spokesman said police would particularly like to hear from the passerby described as a white woman with blonde hair worn in a ponytail as she could be an important witness. If you saw the incident or have any information that could be useful to investigations call 101 and quote reference number 519S of 13 December. Alternatively, to give information anonymously, call the independent charity Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111 or visit crimestoppers.org.uk. This is a, another story by Tom Edwards uh, from Worcester News. Uh, Labour Turf War. The interim chairman of Worcester Labour's branch is facing a vote of no confidence after she made remarks about the party dying. We can reveal how several members of the party are considering making a formal attempt to get Elaine Donnelly removed from her position as others voice fears over a turf war beginning. One former Labour councillor is also thinking of sensationally quitting the party due to deep unease about her comments are being handled. As the Worcester News revealed last week, Miss Donnelly, who wants to become permanent chairman of the Thousand Strong branch, posted a message on Twitter saying the left-wing momentum campaign group was Labour's only hope. She said, Labour is dying. Losing Scotland was evidence of this. Thank goodness for momentum. Labour's only hope before deleting it after the message was picked up by the Tories. But some members want the regional branch to intervene and remove her, saying her comments leave her in a position which is untenable. One activist who is heavily involved in Labour campaigning in the city said, we're proud of our party and what we have achieved, both locally and nationally, so it's difficult to understand the comments. I'm disappointed the chair has made this kind of remark so soon into taking office. We don't feel that she understands the party and therefore we will be moving for a vote of no confidence. Another Labour member, a former councillor, said he would be prepared to go out all guns blazing unless she abandoned the role. The branch has seen its membership quadruple over the last year with the rise of momentum a key factor. One member yesterday warned of a turf war starting If we turn this into a battle, it will be stupid, he said. Miss Donnelly has not responded to the no-confidence threat, but has told this newspaper she believes the support of momentum 
in helping the party boost its grassroots activism is essential. We now see a Labour Party that has a membership growing on a daily basis and sits at over half a million, unlike the Tory party, which hasn't even been able to estimate how many members it has since 2013, she said. Worcester Labour Party is scheduled to hold one of its routine meetings tonight, but a permanent chair will not be selected until February. The position became vacant after former chairman Chris Winwood stood down. A spokesman for West Midlands Labour said, the Labour Party is alive and well, especially in Worcester, where we made gains in the local elections this year and lead the City Council. Well, the keen listeners amongst you probably noticed there that uh, we went from a headline straight into a story. Thank you, Vaughan, for giving me the kick under the table to remind me of this it's my bit out there. My pleasure. My pleasure. So I <laughs> will now continue that. Thank you. And I'll uh, carry on. The headline here in this story is Concert for 150 Years. Now this follows on from what um, Mrs Smith said uh, from uh, the New College Worcester when she came to read a few weeks ago. Uh, and I'll read it out to you. A year of events marking the 150th anniversary of Worcester School comes to close on Friday with a special concert at Worcester Cathedral. New College Worcester, a residential school and college for the blind people, for young people who are blind or partially sighted, has been marking the milestone with various celebratory events and projects. The Christmas concert on Friday will see students performing carols alongside former pupils and staff. The college dates back to 1866 when it was established as Worcester College for the Blind, Sons of Gentlemen at the Commandery. Among the year of activities was a Jubilee Day in April and an oral history project during which former students were interviewed. Marty Smith, New College Principal, said, we have a, We've had a wonderful year of celebrations. It is, tremendous to achieve, it, is, it is a tremendous achievement for a special school to have lasted for 150 years, and so wonderful that so many young people have benefited from being at New College Worcester over that period. The event will be particularly poignant for Mrs Smith, as it will be a last day as principal as she is retiring after 27 wonderful years at the school. It will be a tremendous end to the year, but also a sad day for me personally, she said, having worked with amazing students and have, over the years and have very happy memories. The concert starts at 1.15pm and is open to all, and uh, I hope it works out well for them. As you Marty didn't say last time, but she's retiring with her husband and they've got a camper van. And I, if I remember correctly, they're touring Europe in it and they've been planning this for some time. So well done, Marty, and well done, New College, and well done to everybody attending. Uh, this story is about a phone box um, turning into a, having a new lease of life as a life saving box, I suppose. Right, a new lease of life has been given to an out-of-service telephone box which now contains life-saving equipment. Holt Parish Council took control of the decommissioned BT telephone box near the bus stop on the A443 
and decided to fundraise to turn it into a defibrillator unit. With the help of Dave Harford, Community First Responder Coordinator, and people living in the village, the unit is now up and running. A lick of green paint has replaced the former iconic red hue, and the signs which once read telephone have been changed to read defibrillator. Parish Councillor Pete Mobbs thanked Mr Hobbs for helping them to secure the defibrillator supplied by West Midlands Ambulance Service. He said, When BT turned around and said they wanted to stop the use of the phone box, we were left with a phone box that didn't achieve anything or do anything. We really believed a defibrillator was worthwhile. It is one of those things you never hope to have to use, but it will always be there if there is an emergency. The Parish Council were inspired by Hallow Parish Council, who fundraised for a unit to be placed on the side of the A.E. Clegg Vauxhall dealership. 21 people living in Holt have been taught CPR and how to use the unit during a session run by Mr Harford and his colleague, Tim Hodges. However, the defibrillator also gives voice prompts to instruct people how to use them in an emergency. The next one we have is Banks Closure Will Hit the Elderly Hard. Residents fear the closure of a major Malvern bank will hit old folk hard. The NatWest Bank in Church Street will close in June after the bank blamed a rise in online and mobile banking, causing a drop in transactions. David Civiter, who owns Paris of Malvern Jewellers, said the news was not good for residents, including his 89-year-old mother-in-law, and and indeed me, because I'm also a, a customer of that branch. Jean Trevor Morgan has been a loyal NatWest customer for years and is not happy about the plans. Mr Civiter, 64, said, Where are the old people going to do their banking? I can live with it, but what are the old people going to do? Most of them can't walk to the top of the hill. My mother-in-law lives in Graham Road and has been with NatWest for years. She will have to change banks. We will also be affected from a business point of view. We need to get change out and have a business account with NatWest. I'd like to see a campaign to get them to think again. It's not good for the town. We need to have a major bank in the town. I never thought they'd close this one down. Readers criticised the move on the Gazette Facebook page, with many agreeing the branch was critical for elderly people. Stephanie Harper of Great Malvern posted, Absolute joke. I will be changing banks now. I am not travelling all the way to Worcester every time I need to pay something in or sort something out. Chrissy Cook posted, Once again, the elderly are getting left behind. They're not all sat at home on their smartphones. Shame on you banks for not taking into account all members of society. Simon Smith, Economic Development Manager at Malvern Hills District Council, said the news was very disappointing. He said, For a start, we are very disappointed and concerned they are planning to close in Malvern. We are, quite frankly, surprised a town the size of Malvern can't sustain a NatWest branch. In terms of impact, clearly it will inconvenience their customers. In Great Malvern, there are a number of other banks available. That is not terribly helpful if you are one of their customers. 
The other thing is the future of the building. It's a very prominent position in the town. We'll be keen to understand from NatWest what their plans are for the future of the building. And the Mayor of Malvern, Cynthia Palmer, spoke out against the decision and said it was becoming a common occurrence. Lloyds Bank in Barnett's Green is also due to close in March. NatWest say mobile transactions alone increased by 1,350% between 2010 and 2015, while between 2010 and 2015 mobile and online transactions increased by more than 400%. There are 13 free-to-use cash machines within one mile of the Malvern branch and NatWest will bring a mobile branch and a community banker to the area. In addition, the bank said the post office can be used for transactions. This is a story uh, by Sebastian Richards. Uh, The title is I'm Over the Moon to Win Competition. It will be a very Merry Christmas for one lucky Worcester News reader after she scooped more than £400 of vouchers in a fantastic festive competition. Worcester News teamed up with Worcester Bid to run a cracker of a Christmas competition, inviting our readers to vote for their favourite festive window in the city. Votes came flooding in with a display created by the House of Fraser in Crowngate, the clear winner, bagging 30% of the vote. One of those who voted for the winning window was Rachel Smith of Cockmell Close in Warnden, who was selected at random as the lucky winner of £405 of the vouchers to spend at participating businesses. Miss Smith also won a free meal at a sea restaurant and has chosen to dine at Chester's in New Street, which she describes as one of her favourites in Worcester. She says it feels like Christmas has come early after winning the competition. I'm over the moon to have won. It is an early Christmas present, she said. I'm always someone who prefers to give rather than to receive, so this year I can hopefully spend a bit more on friends and family at Christmas, she said. My mum is 70, so I can get her some extra presents, and my grandson is four on Christmas Day. It has come exactly at the right time for us, with it being just before Christmas. I was asked if I wanted to enter my friend, and I thought, why not? I had a good feeling about this competition. The House of Fraser window is bright, colourful and eye-catching, so I think that is a worthy winner. The festive window at Marks and Spencer's in High Street was the runner-up of our reader vote. And here we have um, a quick abstract from Mike Grundy's nostalgia page at the weekend section on Saturday. <clears throat> As you know, Mike Grundy digs around and comes up with some really quite interesting stuff. I'm going to read you something here which surprised me. And it's all about uh, one of his top 20 uh, people from Worcester. And it says here, Stanley, later Earl Baldwin, who was three times Prime Minister of Britain and a central figure in the abdication crisis of Edward VIII, is buried in the nave of Worcester Cathedral. So you've got Baldwin and and King John in there, so I wonder if they actually talk to each other. Um, No, I shouldn't say things like that. Before his election to Parliament as a Worcestershire MP, he was a county councillor, constantly attending meetings at the Shah Hall Worcester from his home at Astley Hall near Starport. 
He is known to have had a great affection for Worcester, and he was photographed at the side of Prince of Wales, later Edward VIII, when when the future king officially opened and widened the reconstructed Worcester Bridge in 1932. Prime Minister Baldwin once mused, When I was a little boy in Worcestershire reading history books, I never thought that one day I should have to interfere between a king and his mistress. The affair of Edward VIII and Mrs Simpson was was to totally drain the Prime Minister Baldwin, both emotionally and physically, at the age of 69. Yet it was to bring him lavish accolades for his skilful handling of the crisis. Stanley Baldwin was made a Freeman of Worcester at the Guildhall in 1923. This item comes from Friday's newspaper, December the 9th. A woman with a passion for helping homeless people has donated bikes to a hostel. Jilly Pulteney of of Colwell, near Malvern, had the idea when she began befriending a young man through St Paul's Hostel volunteering programme. She said a major obstacle for these young people in finding work is the lack of affordable transport to get them to and from jobs. Many first jobs are low paid and can involve working hours in which public transport isn't available. It's no wonder that people can't maintain jobs when there are so many barriers. Because of this, Mrs Pulteney set out to raise £1,500 to purchase six new bicycles, helmets and safety gear. Hostel Chief Executive Jonathan Sutton said, We're very grateful to Jilly who crowdfunded these bikes. We're about to recruit one full-time job coach as part of the local charity Fusion Consortium. Alongside this coach, these bikes make a great package to help people to move towards work and be more independent. Next one comes from... Uh, a publication on Thursday, December the 15th and it's entitled Shopping Areas A £2 million fund to improve three shopping areas in Worcestershire has been unveiled with Worcester Shambles getting a facelift Worcestershire County Council wants to launch a new kitty to upgrade the appearance of Worcester Great Malvern and Tenbury in a boost to retailers Under the move, the three investments will go into resurfacing, new street lighting, street furniture like benches and other cosmetic improvements. Worcester's spending will focus on the shambles following concern that it has fallen behind other parts of the city. In recent years, the High Street, Broad Street and the Corn Market have all benefited from upgrades in the city, leaving the shambles trailing. Elsewhere, Team Street in Tenbury and Great Malvern Town Centre will also get shares of the money. The spending is part of County Hall's 2017-18 budget plans and will be made available in April, subject to a vote at the full council in February. Some shoppers and retailers in Worcester have welcomed the investment, saying the shambles is looking tired. Keith Coxall, 51, who regularly visits the shops along the route, said, the rest of the city centre looks great. And then you come down there and you think, what a shame. It needs to be much better, so it's not before time. The whole area will look great. The hope is that the spending on each site will be beefed up by further contributions by the district councils. Councillor Simon Garatti 
the county council's leader said, this further investment in a number of town centres is designed to ensure they remain vibrant retail and social spaces where people want to visit and spend time. He added, this is all about creating place, people, a place where people want to be. We want people to enjoy coming in, spending time in these locations and spending money. They are our shop window to the economy. This is a story, uh, headline, Help Me Keep Air Ambulance Flying, by writer Tariq Al-Rashid. Renowned actress Julie Waters has pledged her support to keep the Midlands Air Ambulance flying. The six-time BAFTA and Gold Globe winning star is the latest high-profile celebrity to become an official ambassador for the charity which is celebrating its 25th anniversary. She will help raise awareness and draw attention to the life-saving work of the Air Ambulance, which has an airbase in Strensham near Worcester and relies solely on public support, receiving no lottery or government funding. Miss Waters has good reason to support the Midlands Ambulance. She was born locally in Edgbaston, Birmingham, and prior to her glittering career as an actress, she was a nurse at Birmingham's Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which is one of the major hospitals which the charity's helicopters fly into regularly on life-saving missions. I'm absolutely delighted to support and help raise awareness of the life-saving work of the Midlands Air Ambulance Charity in its 25th anniversary year, Miss Waters said. I was astonished to learn that the charity has to raise £7 million each and every year and receives no funding from either the government or the National Lottery and relies solely on the generosity of the local people across the Midlands. It's incredible to think that the charity has also saved the lives of over 46,000 people since the first helicopter was launched in 1991. The pilots, flying doctors and paramedics all do an incredible and amazing job, literally saving lives every day. Midlands Air Ambulance Charity Chief Executive Hannah Seabright said, We are delighted to have gained the support of Julie Waters to help us highlight the important life-saving work we do here. Julie is a highly respected and much-loved actress internationally and nationally, but particularly across the Midlands, where she is considered to be one of our own. Other Midlands Air Ambulance Ambassadors include TV presenter Richard Hammond, former F1 driver Nigel Mansell, and Rugby World Cup winner Mike Tyndall. And here's something that could be of interest to you. They're going to try and improve the pavements in Worcester. And for those of you with uh, poor sight and or a bit shaky on your legs, that'd be great news. The line is six million to tackle our tatty pavements. Uh, it's by jo Tom Edwards. They must have bought a job lot of stories off him this week. A six million fund has been drawn up by council chiefs to repair damaged Worcestershire pavements. <clears throat> the money means spending on footpaths across the county will rise around 130% from the current 2.6 million, more than doubling it, and enjoy the mental arithmetic working that out. The investment has come from Worcestershire County Council after years of concerns about the appearance of some paths. Across the county, there are 2,000 miles of footpaths, but many are riddled with cracks. Seven years ago, an in-house report put the backlog repairs at a staggering 26 million. 
And since then, almost three million a year has been sunk into it. So that's the expenditure of roughly, what, 21 million. But last year, there were still defects stretching back 128 miles. So we've had 2,000 miles down to 128. The new fund, part of the 2017-18 draft budget, is set to be made available in April and will be spent on a case-by-case basis. Conservative Council Garrity, the council leader, said, The new spending we're looking at effectively doubles what we're spending now. It's a pretty significant sum. We know our footpaths are in pretty good condition, and we know 8 out of 10 people are satisfied with Worcestershire's environment. But we want to be in the upper quartile across the UK for pavements. We are not there now, and we realise that. The move has been praised by some people in Worcester who says it should be at the top of their priorities. Now, oh, now I'd like to uh, ask the team to read this week's sport, and we're starting off with, uh, looks like me, Friday, December the 9th, is that me? I'm picking bits out of them. Yeah, okay, so here we are, I'll start off. Forgery Crowd Inc. Art Champ. That's an interesting headline, isn't it? Hello, teenager. Kurt Forgery has been crowned the 2016 Daytona Tamworth Inc. Art Championship winner. The 15-year-old received this trophy after being the most consistent driver over nine rounds from March till November on go-karts. His total points was 12.06 which was 90 ahead of its nearest competitor. Next year, the teenager plans to tackle the competitive Daytona D-Max Championship for two-stroke carts. A couple of cricket stories here for you. Daryl Mitchell has signed a new four-year contract with Worcestershire. The long-serving opening batsman, who had two years remaining on his current deal, has committed himself to the county until the end of the 2020 campaign. Badsy Bourne Mitchell, who turned 33 last month, made his Worcestershire debut in all formats of the game in 2005 after coming through the academy ranks at New Road. And the other story is that Joe Clark has been included in the England Lions squad for the four-day and one-day series against Sri Lanka A in February and March. The Worcestershire batsman is one of ten players selected for both sections of the five-week tour. And this tour will include two four-day games and five one-day matches. And now we go on to Worcester Warriors. The returning Worcester Warriors back, Ben Howard, is hungry and determined to put to bed the most frustrating time of his career. The 23-year-old begins his comeback in Warriors' important European Challenge Cup match, or perhaps I should have said he he began it, not he's going to begin it, against Newport Gwent Dragons at six ways. Howard was eyeing an opening day Aviva Premiership starting berth against Saracens in September when he damaged his ankle in Worcester's pre-season match in Jersey. The last few months have probably been the most frustrating time of my career, said Howard. You don't expect to get injured in pre-season games with the... With, oh, sorry, I've lost my, lost my taste slightly. With the new, re, new season just around the corner, 
Chris Pennell was out injured at the time and since then a lot of guys have come in and done very well. I got tackled against Jersey and someone fell on my ankle. It's exactly the same injury that Tiff Eden and Niall Hannett Annett have had. So it's quite a common rugby injury due to the way we're tackled. I played on for 20 minutes afterwards thinking it was okay, but when I got the injury scanned, the medical team realised there were no longer any ligaments attached. Howard needed surgery on his ankle and returned to the first team fold after a three-month exile and a run-out against Oxford University. And I've trained for the last couple of weeks, he said, and was the travelling reserve at Exeter Chiefs and almost got on the bench. So it's just a case of getting out and putting my hand up, he said. This time I was the time I was off seemed very lonely because you're not in the mix or in people's mindsets and when injuries were being listed my name wasn't on most of them. In the 2014-15 championship campaign, Howard scored seven tries in 21 league and cup games, and he added, I would like to say I'm still a fullback but I'm starting on the wing against Dragons, which is a credit to the way that Josh Adams has played because the coaches wanted to give him some game time at fullback. I've had three extra months to make myself hungry for the moment when I step back on the pitch. This is a follow-on um, to that story by Worcester Warriors. Uh, this is on Monday, December the 12th. Uh, the headline is Dominant Pack Crushes Dragons. Story by Ian Morgan. Worcester Warriors 33, Newport Dragons 20. The brute strength of Worcester Warriors' forward pack powered them to a convincing home victory against Newport Gwent Dragons in the European Challenge Cup. Two late converted tries from wing Aston Hewitt eased some of Dragons' pain, but this was a convincing victory for Warriors in a rain-lashed six ways. Warriors' front five scrummaged superbly as a unit, and their grunt merited two penalty tries, which underlined the host dominance in that facet of the game. It was the first time that Val Ruskin, Jack Singleton, Will Spencer and Christian Scotland Williamson had bedded down together. Giant Lock Spencer grew in confidence on his Warriors debut and made several significant carries in the second period, which got the hosts over the game line. Scotland Williamson also added his considerable physical presence to the second row, but blotted his copybook with an 18-minute trip on Dragons fullback Tom Pridey, which bought a yellow card. With Worcester Warriors pack now overwhelming the visitors, Harris's yellow card was swiftly followed by the host's first penalty try before Brown was also dispatched to the sin bin. With the Dragons pinned in the far corner, Warriors were awarded a second penalty try which Braid converted to sweep the hosts into an emphatic 26-6 lead after 59 minutes. It got even better for Warriors after Max Stelling seized upon a loose kick to race through a gap in Dragons' defence for their fifth try, with Braid converting. Dragons finished with a flourish and two well-taken tries from Hewitt, with O'Brien converting both, will give them hope for Friday's return fixture. Live John <clears throat> draw the short straw for angling. And in this article, it actually tells you a little bit of how to interpret what's been written. For example, when Beryl used to read it, she used to read out numbers and none of us knew what it meant. And it means that the first set of numbers is pounds, <clears throat> the second set is ounces, 
And for those who are, are over 21, they then go into drams. And some of the names they use to describe what they're doing, honestly, it's fishing and it's not an abstract out of a James Joyce's Ulysses. So let's start, shall we? Angling. Tony is a man to be at opens. <clears throat> Former Allen's tackle captain, Tony Witcher, continued his midweek domination at Woodland View, that's I think on the canal, when he beat a good turnout to win the Dean's Pool Open at the fishery. Oh, it's the fishery. Conditions were far from favourable, <clears throat> excuse me, with an overnight temperature down to minus six. But Witcher used his straight ledger tactics, that means on the bottom, uh, drawn on a permanent peg 25, that means his position around the pool. The fishery specialist offered punched bread along with corn and pellet hook baits to net a mixed bag of species for a winning total of 32 pounds, 12 ounces, zero drams. Runner-up was Witcher's travelling partner, Rob Wilson, from St Stephen's team, with a £31, 4 ounces, by looking at this. While third <clears throat> was Roy Barney with a £28, 4 ounces, from peg 17. Sansa backed, that appears to be the, the sponsors, backed Simon Nicholas, who used the feeder to good effect on Dean's peg, etc., Venue regular Paul Silby was second off a peg with a good score. Um, Sid Lawrence was in there as well. Uh, Droitwich Spa open winner Matt Geller endured a biteless three hours on peg two in the first pound at Porter's Mill, and that's on the canal, before a shoulder perch decided to feed. Using pinky bait just out of the deeper centre channel, so Gallows, Gallagher's Gallier's net a final two-hour match-winning total of six pounds, eight ounces, two drams. Club star Chris Ballard was on peg seven in the same pound where he took a mixed bag, also on pinky bait, for five pounds, 13 ounces, four drams. Well, I hope you all understood that because it was going way above my head. Uh, it's a freak accident ends ex-Wolves Aces season. Former Worcester Wolves forward Jamal Williams has suffered a season-ending injury at London Lions in a freak accident. The 30-year-old severed a nerve in his arm and after immediate surgery is now recuperating. Doctors have said, depending on the next month of treatment, 6-5-inch Williams could make a full recovery in 8-12 to 12 months. He helped Wolves win the British Basketball League trophy in 2014 by scoring 26 points and claiming the Most Valuable Player Award in an 83-76 defeat of Glasgow Rocks. I am devastated for Jamal, said Lions Chief Executive Vince McCauley. He's been a heartbeat for our team. We've all rallied around and will support Jamal as best we can. He's in good spirits and good hands too. Wolves have no game this weekend but return to action on Friday, December the 16th in the league against Bristol Flyers at the University of Worcester Arena, 7.30pm. Worcester pupils edged out in annual clash. Two city children shone in Worcester's winter junior chess tournament at the King's School 
Tamara Marsden of King's School and Jacob Gulliam from St Albans narrowly missed out on third place in a hard-fought competition. Finlay Bocott Terry, Liso's high school Dudley, was crowned the overall winner after recording 15 points. Although only 11 years old, Finlay is a regular league player for Hales Owen Chess Club and won all his games. Chin May Monger from King Edward School, Edgebaston, took second spot with a return of 13 points. Three players finished on 11 points and Silas Bocott Terry from Woodhouse Primary, Quinton, pipped Tamara Masden and Jacob Gulliam on a tie-break. Ray Collett and Rob Walkowiak, I'm sorry, I've hesitated on that one, organised the tournament for Worcestershire Junior Chess Academy with support from the King's School. Meanwhile, Terry Radford from Droitwich helped Worcester's under-12 team to a a 7.5, 4.5 win against Lincolnshire. Promotion joy for informed Dolphins. Droitwich Dolphins smashed all opposition to gain promotion to Division 2 in the National Arena Swimming League. They won the final round in Division 3 West by 37 points, claiming 21 victories, 11 second places and 11 thirds from 50 events. The Dolphins improved 96% of their times from the previous two rounds. For the second gala running, the Open ladies team didn't drop a point. Ruth Hadley led the way with victories in the 200-metre individual medley, 100-metre backstroke and 100-metre breaststroke. Rebecca Hadley won the 100-metre butterfly and 100-metre freestyle. Anja Christie and Georgia Appleton supported them to win the 4x50-metre medley relay and they were joined by Elise Smith and Ashley Turner to claim victory in the 6x50-metre freestyle relay. The boys 11 under team I beg your pardon, the boys 11 under team dropped one point with wins for Will Hughes in the 50-metre butterfly and freestyle and for Patrick Florendo in the 50-metre backstroke. They were joined by Ross Clark and Harry Gretsch to win both their 4x50-metre medley and freestyle relays. Other impressive dis- displays were delivered by Hugh Hilson, who won the boys 15 years and under 100-metre breaststroke and 100-metre butterfly. George Gretsch won the 100-metre breaststroke in the 13 and under age group, where Guy Duffy, Oliver McCullough and Alex Munro joined him to win both their 4x50-metre medley and freestyle relays. Ashley Turner won the girls' 100-metre backstroke in the 15 and under age group, and Aaron Biddle won the 100-metre backstroke for the men's open team. Aaron was joined by Tom Evans, Chris Jenkinson and Tim Quinney to win the 4x50-metre medley relay, and by George Gretsch and Hugh Hilson to claim a great victory in the 6 by 50 metre freestyle relay. Well, that that's, uh, brings us to the end of the sports section. Now, I think uh, we'll pop over to the radio. Pippa, please. Yeah, a couple of <clears throat> choices I'd like to um, bring to your attention for. This is Saturday, the 17th of December. 
At 5pm on Classic FM, you can listen to a special around Steven Spielberg. Just trying to find the details. Here we go. Saturday night at the movies, Andrew Collins marks tomorrow's 70th birthday of director Steven Spielberg. Spielberg, so you can listen to music from Jaws, E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, Schindler's List and others. And then the other one I would recommend is on BBC Radio 4 Extra. You can listen to it either at 9 o'clock in the morning or it's 7 o'clock in the evening, and it's a festive radio special presented by the great British, try again, British Bake Off host, Sue Perkins, and it's a variety of Christmas comedies on the radio. So that's Radio 4 Extra. And I'm telling you I have something about the BBC Radio 4 on the 22nd of December. That's next Thursday. And two I would like to mention to you. One of them is at 10.45, the book at bedtime, Christmas short stories. Sounds pretty interesting. And that's on Radio 4. And then the other one I would mention is one that concerns crossing continents. And that's at 11 o'clock on the same, uh, same day, 22nd of December. And it's entitled Crossing Continents, Punk, Art and Protest in Malaysia. That sounds quite different, doesn't it? So that one could also be a good one to, to, to listen to. OK, we have Monday Radio. This is Monday 19th of December. Um, I'd like to bring to your attention uh, a 10 o'clock programme on BBC Radio 2. Uh, this is Tommy Steele at 80. This is uh, in two parts. The first part... At 10 o'clock in the morning, Tommy Steele at 80, London board entertainer and former teen idol and rock and roll star Tommy Steele uh, was 80 on Saturday. The irrepressible veteran talks to Bill Kenwright about his career, which includes 15 consecutive top 30 hits between 1956 and 1960. Also, on Monday the 19th of December, uh, we have 9.45 on Radio 4, um, a new book of the week. Uh, this is the first part of five episodes. Uh, this is the book of the week, which is Love of Country. This is Madeline Bunting's exploration of the history and landscapes of the Hebrides and of how these islands off the northwest coast of mainland Scotland have shaped Britain. The stories are read by Dune Mackican. A splendid, precise and gracious book was the verdict of the review in Scotland on Sunday. And here we have, <coughs> excuse me, Tuesday the 20th. Whistle through this. Radio 2, Jamie Cullum. At 7 o'clock, 11.30, listen to the band. Brass band specialist Frank Renton presents a Christmas special with music from the 16th century. Now, sounds interesting. Uh, 10.45, now this is looks good. The Ideas of Christmas, uh, Star of Wonder, in a series exploring the significance of a nativity story, Space scientist Monica Grady reflects on the star of Bethlehem. Sounds good. And on Wednesday, the... <coughs> Wednesday must be about the 21st of December. Um, on Radio 3, there is a special choral even song going on at 
Choir of Clare College, Cambridge, which I suspect will be lovely. And if you want something a little bit more up to date on Radio 2 at 10 o'clock in the morning, there is a programme about when Kenny Everett met the Fab Four, as in the Beatles, and I suspect that will be quite entertaining. And I'd like to uh, mention a couple from Sunday, the 18th of December. An interesting combination, these two. Uh, on um, radio, uh, radio, uh, radio Four, beg your pardon. Um, there's one of two there that I think are quite good programmes. One of them is called the Food Programme. <coughs> Excuse me. At twelve thirty p.m. on Radio Four on the eighteenth. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm getting a bit rusty. And this one is a the, the programme is about cake. We love it, don't we? And that is one of my major, major uh, likes in life. So that one's 12.30 on Radio 4 on the 18th. And then at 7pm on the Sunday the 18th, the BBC Sports Personality of the Year is being, pro, being uh, played out. And that's at 7 o'clock on the 18th of December. And uh, we have to see who's going to win that one. OK, we know on Friday, this is the 23rd of December... Um, one of our favourites uh, at uh, on BBC Radio 2, 8 o'clock, Friday night is music night. Richard Balcom conducts the BBC Concert Orchestra in a special new surround sound adaption of Dickens' Christmas Carol. Music features in the production with favourites from Kate Miller, together with West End stars John Owen Jones, Rosie Craig and Lewis Dearman, plus the 24, 24 voices of the Gorry Woman's Choir. Now that's at uh, 8 o'clock uh, on Friday, the 23rd, on BBC Radio 2. Also on the same day, perhaps I could draw your attention on Radio 4 uh, to a 3 o'clock appointment at Gardner's Questioning Time, which is an historic first for the programme as it enters its 70th year, a broadcast from the State Dining Room of 10 Downing Street, where an audience of Radio 4 listeners put questions to panellists. Christine Walkden, Matthew Wilson and Pippa Greenwood. That sounds jolly interesting. I wonder if they're in the Rose Garden and see if, who is it, Cleggy and Cameron are still there. Rattling on. Okie dokie. Now, highlight of the evening um, is Vaughan again. And he's going to give us a very quick talk on the highlights of the Battle of Worcester. That's right, Vaughan, isn't it? I've got it I right. Can do that. Yeah, <coughs> yeah. Can do that. If, uh, if okay. you're comfortable, carry okay. on. Fine. Well, I'm. We'll question you afterwards on it. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm uh, the honorary secretary of the Battle of Worcester Society. Uh, the Battle of Worcester Society is a charity. It's dedicated to providing education to the general public, to schools and universities, of the importance of the Battle of Worcester in our local, national, and international history. Possibly, as uh, most listeners will know, the Battle of Worcester took place on the 3rd of September 1651, where the armies of Parliament under Oliver Cromwell destroyed the largely Scottish forces of Charles II. So, at long last, on the 3rd of September 1651, after nine years of warfare, the English Civil Wars finally come to an end. It was a confusing time, it was confusing then and confusing looking back over all the centuries. It's complicated. In fact, it is so complicated 
that the English civil wars are not taught in any depth in any school in the United Kingdom. Perhaps the basic facts are mentioned, uh, but there is no attempt to try to understand in depth or analyse the period. It is a subject which is reserved almost exclusively for university study. Perhaps we could just correct some general misunderstandings on this period. Uh, firstly, although uh, the wars are talked of the English Civil War, the war was actually fought in England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, and is often referred to by historians as the War of Three Kingdoms. Also, there wasn't just one war, there were three separate wars between 1642 and 1651, all fought by different people for different reasons. Perhaps we should just uh, very briefly uh, recap on, on what brought um, the Battle of Worcester uh, in 1651, which was the Third Civil War. We just very quickly recap that the first English Civil War uh, started uh, with the raising of the standard by Charles I uh, on the 22nd of August 1642 at Nottingham. Uh, where he made a declaration that he would uphold the Protestant religion, the laws of England, and the liberty of Parliament. Uh, Parliament also at the same time, the drums were beating to raise an army for Parliament, which was declared for the safety of the King's person, for the defence of both Houses of Parliament, and of those who have obeyed their orders and commands, and for the preservation of the true religion, the laws, liberties, and peace of the Kingdom. That sounds as though it's been written by a committee, doesn't it, really? But really, when you think of the two statements, there's not much difference between them. Not really worth going to war about. Why go to war when the two statements are very similar? But there was a difference, and the difference was this. The men marching in the parliamentary army, the Quakers, the early Quakers, the Presbyterians, the Nonconformists, the Anabaptists, the Levellers, all these men marching in the parliamentary army wore sprigs of green in their hats. And green in the 17th century was equivalent of red today. Red, which is the colour of revolution. And the story of the English civil wars are a story of revolution and counter-revolution. The English civil war started with a skirmish at Poet Bridge in September 1642 and really ended with the defeat of the king on the 22nd of August, uh, 1648. The Second Civil War um, took place um, with the intention of the Scots uh, to restore uh, Charles to the throne. Um, the Scottish army uh, invaded uh, the north of England. It was defeated by Oliver Cromwell. Uh, and the result of which was that Charles I was executed uh, in January 1649. And the Third Civil War, which ended with the Battle of Worcester, started in 1650 with Charles II, as he then was, uh, bringing an army from Scotland to avenge his father and to restore himself to the English throne. So the Battle of Worcester Society is concerned with the promoting the importance uh, of the battle in our local national and international history. And we provide conferences, lectures, dinner lectures and publications, and also digital information to provide detailed and researched information uh, on the Battle of Worcester 
and the period surrounding it. Over the last 20 years, we've held dinner lectures which have attracted prominent historians to produce carefully researched papers which we have presented to audiences at these dinners. These research papers contain new investigative facts that are not readily available elsewhere and for that reason have been published by the Society to enable a wider access by scholars studying the 17th century. The interest of the English Civil Wars extends right across the whole spectrum of current British society, including from all parts of the political spectrum. For example, the Worcester Conservative MP, Sir Robin Walker, is a member of the society, but also interested in the Civil War extends to Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, whose great hero is John Lilbourne, leader of the Levellers in the 1640s. So the Battle, the Battle of Worcester Society is concerned very much with the study and research of the English Civil Wars, and in particular uh, the end of the Civil War, uh, which was the Battle of Worcester. But we're also concerned uh, with modern issues, because we're concerned to further the development in the 21st century of the city of Worcester by supporting the marketing of the city as a civil war centre and to encourage the expansion of the visitor economy. It's a sad fact that there are millions of visitors and foreign tourists who come into the area each year, but the vast majority go straight to Stratford and Warwick and drive straight past Worcester. So what we're seeking to do is to help the City Council to develop Worcester uh, as a civil war centre. And the Battle of Worcester Society is about to launch a public appeal for £150,000 to create a statue of the American Presidents John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, which will be put on Fort Royal. And John Adams and Thomas Jefferson visited Worcester in April 1786. At the time of their visit, in 1786, they were American ambassadors on a private tour of England, but they visited Worcester because they viewed the English Civil Wars as an English revolution from which the American War of Independence took inspiration. On his visit, John Adams made a speech on Fort Royal in April 1786, in which he said, And do Englishmen so soon forget the ground where liberty was fought for? Tell your neighbours and your children that this is holy ground, more holy than on which your churches stand, or England should come in pilgrimage to this hill once a year. That was really educational. I learnt a lot from that. Thank you very much indeed, Vaughan. Pippa, have you got any questions? Any points you'd like to raise? Um, I just wanted to know whether the Poic battlefield was the same as the next one nine years later. Did they take place in the same place or not? Uh, the, the the battle uh, in 1642, which is described, it wasn't really a battle. Uh, the, the battle was a skirmish at Poet Bridge, uh, where there were a few hundred men took place. Uh, but uh, certainly, um, the battle itself uh, on the third September 1651, uh, the advance was um, across the, the meadows and also through the Proic area, so it would have been over the same ground again, yes. Right. Any, any points, John? 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm, I'm a foreigner, so to speak. And oh, right. I, I, have well, a lot, I have a lot of work to do yet before I can ask any questions about the um, situation. Thank you. It's interesting. If you look through some of the, uh, what I call the jumbly shops or second-hand shops in Worcester, you can often find Civil War cannonballs for sale. And you can tell the real Civil War ones, as opposed to um, scrapyard round balls, pick them up, and if they feel slightly peculiar, i.e. not round, you can tell they're real, because they couldn't cast pure round balls in those days. Now, Vaughan just mentioned about uh, the statue um, for the Americans. If um, you're coming out of Fourgate Street Station, walk across the road, and there on the hotel wall is a plaque uh, to John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right, yeah. yeah. So we're hoping, actually, that um, with the promotion of the statue, uh, that they'll encourage um, American visits uh, and uh, that it will, Worcester will put on the itinerary of uh, American uh, travel agents. Um, so, you know, I think um, there's a lot in Worcester for American tourists um, and I think that the additional attraction of a Civil War centre in the commandery uh, will add uh, to uh, the visitor economy. If I can just sort of finish by uh, very quickly saying that um, there are many twists and tales in the uh, stories of the English Civil Wars and um, the English Civil War finished, as I've mentioned, on the 3rd of September 1651 in the Battle of Worcester. Oliver Cromwell then became uh, Lord Protector. Uh, he died of natural causes uh, in 1658. He died actually on the 3rd of September. Uh, the same date as the victory at Worcester. And it was actually uh, then in 1660 uh, that Charles II, uh, who had been living in poverty in exile, uh, was restored to the throne. But the irony of it all was that Charles II wasn't restored by a foreign army. Uh, he wasn't, in, uh, wasn't um, restored by any uh, uprising. And he wasn't restored by the English Parliament that then was. Charles II was restored to the English throne by the Cromwellian army, the same Cromwellian army which had destroyed his father's army and his own army at the Battle of Worcester in 1651. So, full of irony there. Uh, and some of the people who had uh, fought with Charles II and fought with his father were overlooked at the Restoration in preference to people who had fought against him, but nevertheless had been able to bring him back to the throne. A couple of points for me. Um, where does Worcester get its loyal bit? What, the, the faithful city? The yeah. faithful city, yes. I think actually that was a Victorian invention, really. <laughs> I, I think... Um, Thank you. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think Worcester... Um, Worcester opened its gates to um, Charles II. Uh, the population of Worcester was probably three and a half thousand or something like that, I quite remember. He had, there was 15,000 uh, Scots um, with a few English um, advancing towards Worcester and they opened the gates. At the time, 
there was a parliamentary garrison in in uh, in Worcester. In That's right. In the cathedral, we had the uh, Bishop of Worcester here, didn't mm. we? Mm. And uh, when you go round there, you can see the burn marks where they had the stables and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what about the um, carving on the front of the Guildhall? Well, the carving on the on the Guildhall, the the, the original Guildhall, which was uh, in Worcester in 1651, was replaced by the current building, which is a Queen Anne building, and the um, the head. Uh, which is uh, pinned by the ears uh, above the door, um, we think actually is a portrayal of the devil. There are enough pictures. People say it was a, it was a, a portrait of um, of Cromwell, but there were lots of pictures of Cromwell, and the figure doesn't look anything like Cromwell. I think it's a portrayal of a, of the devil. Well, there's two myths have been destroyed this evening. <laughs> are you working with the? Um with the Worcester publicity on items such as that, or are you going to get the Americans well, we, we to do, enhance it? We, we do publicise. We do publicise quite a lot of information, some of which has been in uh, in, on, <coughs> uh, in, in Worcester News uh, on some of the uh, quarterly historical supplements, which have been in Worcester News in, in yeah. the course of this year. Okay, thank you, Vaughan, very much indeed for that. Sure. I'm sure our listeners will be really pleased to hear that, and I'm, I'm sure they're going to re re replay it several times to make sure they, they get it all in. Okay. Now, listeners, if you've um, got any ideas for guest speakers, please let me know as I'm building up my list for next year. Um, so look forward to that. Okay, weather forecast and sun times. Needless to say, we can't guarantee its accuracy. Generally speaking, it's going to be overcast and cold. Um, I can give you all the details if you want, but believe me, it's going to be overcast and cold. Sunrise is at 8.12am, sunset 3.56pm, and you'll be pleased to know on the 21st of December, everything changes, life improves in that area. Um, we're getting close to the end, um, and gives me an opportunity to say something that I've been thinking about for some time, is that some of you may not be able to get out and about much, if you think it'd be a good idea to have a sort of um, a walking partner set up, where you could phone up and say, "Look, can somebody come over and have a take me out for a walk or something like that?" Because I know this time of the year you don't get much vitamin D in, and your health will go down. I know that as a fact because my doctor told me the other day. But if you are thinking about uh, or needing a walking partner, let us know, and we'll see what we can do to set things up to help you out. Well, I'd like to thank tonight's reading team. Thank you very much, Pippa, John, um, Vaughan. Really good. Really appreciate it. And somewhere around, we're trying to get Justin to pop round and say hello, because he's got to come round, because there's no microphone in his little shed. But he can... Do you want to mime it? Say goodbye, <laughs> Merry Christmas? Yeah, he's miming it through there. <laughs> okay, so keep the coming back. Our thought for the day is treat others how you'd like to be treated and the team would like to thank wish you all a happy christmas and uh, we look forward to making more recordings next year so happy, happy christmas from me and a happy christmas from me too and a happy christmas from vaughan and from me so look forward to talking to you all next year and i hope you enjoy this evening's uh, recording goodbye <laughs>